This is Media Business Matters, the podcast that explores why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Zintner. Last week we talked about how the ways we watch television and film are changing. This week's episode is about how they might not be changing after all. One of the goals of network television is to put people in front of the TV. And one of the ways they're doing this is through live television events. So Amanda, why are the networks pushing for this sort of event? Well, it comes back to what the core economic transaction for the broadcast networks is, which is actually not about what we often think as audiences, that they're giving us any kind of programming. Actually, we're the ones that are being sold. The network business is based on aggregating audiences, you know, sort of dangling something out there that gets our attention, and then once they've got us all gathered together, they sell us to advertisers. Right, right. And they're doing this through a few different types of programming that are different from, say, your um, your scripted and t- typical reality shows. I mean, they're doing this through things like um, the NBC Live musicals, which have beca- now become a holiday tradition. And some of them have worked and some of them haven't. Like, NBC a few years ago put on the Million Dollar Quiz, which just bombed outright nobody tuned in so a lot of what the shifting programming strategies have to do is with the networks trying to make sure you view live and so your scripted series a lot of that can be time shifted or you can you know wait even as long for it to come on netflix but their economic model doesn't really work if that's what you're doing And so what they've been trying to do is pay attention to what kind of programming audiences will show up for and be in the live audience for, because that means you're also going to be sitting there when they show the commercials. So sports programming has traditionally done this very well and continues to to do this perfectly well. I don't think there's any more powerful an organization in television right now than the NFL. In the U.S., absolutely. But anywhere around the world, and even other sports leagues as well, sports programming, no one's going to record that and watch it later. And on top of the fact that audiences watch live, there's all sorts of opportunities for sponsorship and brand integration. So really, sports events are, are continue to be really the bread and butter for the networks. And what we see them doing is trying to figure out, well, what other kinds of programming might have that same kind of live draw? And so some of the reality competitions have worked that way. Uh, American Idol has been very big with their live sh- live result shows. Absolutely. So if you if if the networks can build a show that has such a fan following that it's important that you see it live, that you know who won or what happened when you go to work or to school the next day, that's that's really when those unscripted shows are working at their best for the networks. Right. And they're also trying to work through these one-night events. And I, like I said, the NBC and Fox Live musicals. NBC kind of put the Sound of Music Live on taking a risk. And it worked. And now they're continuing it. And Fox even decided to do one of their own with Grease Live, which aired a couple weeks ago. That was a massive success for them. So the the live musical, is it's actually sort of ironic given the history of television. This is exactly how television started. When the medium first emerged, there wasn't a functional way to record the content. And so li- the, the television was built on liveness, and it was a normal thing. So historically... Programming was built around a single sponsor. It might be the Studio 90 Playhouse. And what that was was every week, it was on at the same time, but every week it was a different play staged for television. And so through television's first five to ten years, much of its programming was live. And so this is actually a really curious throwback to that era. It is. 
I mean, even when NBC airs the broadcast, they put on the logo and says this is the return of a tradition from the 50s. Enjoy it. And so the motivation for watching a musical live might not be quite as strong. I I have to admit that I've been watching them, but I've watched them recorded. Whereas I actually uh, sit down and watch them live, but that also might be because I'm reviewing them. So I feel kind of the obligation to. So I don't think we can view this as a magic bullet, but as long as the, the... networks can find a way to have these programming events that somehow stand out and seem special, that can be an effective way to drive audiences back to live viewing. It can. Now, let's talk about the granddaddy of all of these live events, the Super Bowl, which I personally like to call the media event of the year because of how it brings different forms of media together. So how do we understand the role of the game today? Well, in some ways it hasn't changed. What's different is that it it is more atypical Uh, now than it ever had been before. And so where it used to be possible to regularly gather decent-sized audiences, audiences of 20, 30 million for weekly programs like Friends or Seinfeld and ER, and now it's, it's really a good week if a broadcast network can have a show that reaches 10 million viewers. Now compare that to the Super Bowl, which has sort of steadily edged up along with U.S. television households in the 100 million plus category. But this this year's game was 111 million people watching. Right, and so that's that's a sense of really you you have ten times the the potential viewers. And certainly, I know I had some people over and we were eating and talking, and so. I can't say that we watched all the game or even all the commercials. Same for same for me. <laughs> so I think it, it, the Super Bowl is more than a media event. It, it is certainly that, but it is an odd cultural event in terms of an occasion in which people do choose to gather particularly for television content. Especially because um, it's not just that football game. I mean, sure, football's played, but that's not the most important part of watching the event. I mean, bring everything together. Bring in the ads which cost $5 million a pop. Bring in the concert, or the halftime show, which this year featured uh, Coldplay, Beyonce, and Bruno Mars, and probably one of the weirdest mashups I've ever seen. Um, and then, of course, it's a, I mean, 111 people are watching the network. So they're going to use this to promote themselves. And you, saw, you certainly saw a lot of that with CBS this year. It is the advantage of, of having the game, is certainly having that platform in which... Many, many, many viewers are are there watching your your channel and your network. It is interesting the 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 challenges that do come with bringing together a mass audience, and it's a mass audience that is increasingly accustomed to sort of being off in their own gated communities. I don't think we see it as much with the Super Bowl. There was really nothing particularly controversial this year around the Super Bowl, uh, but we do often find it around events like the Academy Awards and the Grammys. Which you know they're they're nowhere near the scale of the Super Bowl as media events, but they are still times that a more mass audience comes together, and I think those are occasions where we see sort of a struggle, whether it's in finding a host that has quite the right sensibility that's going to uh, appeal to that broad audience. It's difficult in a time when we are accustomed to sort of having comedy and hosts that are, are geared more toward us with our specific tastes. Absolutely. I mean, every year you hear about the Oscars. You hear about them struggle to find a host. And not everyone fits in that mold. Um, like, this year, Chris Rock is going to be hosting. And given all the controversy surrounding the awards, kind of the hope is that he'll be that bite. That 
typically Oscar hosts are not allowed to have. Although he was announced before sort of the recognition that the uh, the nominations were overwhelmingly white. So it, it, it's interesting that that happened to be the case, you know, as opposed to uh, Ellen and some of the other hosts in recent years. That's true. So now, do you think the networks can produce enough of these live events to keep them afloat throughout the year? Well, afloat is an interesting measure. And are we going back to an era in the 50s where all programming is, is done live? Probably not. Uh, that, that is exactly not the special event nature. And I think we're actually coming off of, of, of a few years of the networks perhaps over-relying on unscripted content and trying to drive audiences with shows like American Idol, which is ending, The Voice. And so even that strategy seems to be less available than it, it had been in the past. I think we have to keep in mind that the, the networks are part of conglomerates, and the conglomerates also own cable channels and they own studios. Actually, I think the answer is that a lot of the networks are pivoting the nature of their business so they're not just about ad spending anymore or trying to get those ad dollars. So over really the last decade, instead of just being based on advertiser support, the broadcast networks have started to receive money back from cable providers, and it's now roughly 20% of their, their revenue, and that's money that they didn't receive before 2007. So they're increasingly having a subscription form of funding as well. And so I think that also is helping to deal with the decreasing audiences and, and certainly the lesser role of advertising in their overall revenue picture. Absolutely. Television isn't the only industry trying to get you to consume content in the traditional way. The music industry is too. Like, in November, Adele released her new album 25 to record-selling sales, with over 8 million copies sold so far in the United States alone. Now, while she, when she released her album, she defied what I guess would be the current norm of music by not making her album available on streaming services like Spotify or Apple Music. Why do you think she made this decision? Well, Adele's in a very particular situation where she could choose to, to do that. I mean, certainly we have to recognize that that was a strategy not available to any talent, but only, well, specifically to her as, as a artist that has a large existing fan base. And it had been a number of years since she'd released any music. So we think we have to understand this in terms of supply and demand. And there was a lot of pent-up demand. Uh, I can definitely speak for that. I've been awaiting that album since 21. And so the broad, it, it was also, though, a gamble. And so we could be having a very different conversation had things turned out differently. But I think one of what this illustrates, and we have, I think, at least once a year, there's sort of this story out of the recording industry that defies norms or conventions or expectations. And I think almost in every case, it also comes back to, well, it's a pretty particular thing. This isn't suggesting uh, that the whole industry can move in a different direction. When I heard Adele talking about, about this decision, sort of what she said publicly is that she wants music to be experienced as an album. And, and, and that's fine, and, and she's in a particular uh, stratosphere that, that can kind of demand that her fans find the content in a particular way. And so just because this was successful in this one case, uh, I don't see it being a illustrating a tide change in, in the recording industry overall. No, I don't think so. Um, I, think the, I, I do think the recording industry is moving towards that streaming model. Um, and while album sales will never go away, like watching TV live will never go away, 
you're definitely going to see it come up and become a huge part of the way people listen to music if it hasn't already, which I would say it has. I think one thing to think about is the possibility or, or recognize that there's nothing natural about releasing music in an album. This was a norm that developed back when the only way to release music was on a physical form. And it really didn't make a lot of sense economically to release singles because of the amount of material and labor that went into, whether it was creating on on vinyl or on cassette and then CD, this physical form. And, and that's part of where this history of the album came from and, and that idea of a collection of songs. Now, in some cases, artists really have a conception of a complete album and a number of, of songs that go together in a certain way. Although in many, time, in many cases, the album was really just a useful tool for the recording industry to require audiences or listeners to pay more for their music. So it's long also been the case that listeners really only wanted one or two songs, but there was no other way to access them. And so this was a way for the recording industry to make a lot more money from music sales than they could if there was a, a singles market. That's really interesting because I don't know if I really knew um, a time where you could buy a single on a CD or something like that. No, there, there were there were albums there there were there it was available in vinyl and then a little bit in cassettes. But the CD market in particular was one that was not ever um, there was no singles market. No, but when you move online now, you have this huge singles market. You have. You can go into iTunes and buy a song for a dollar, a dollar twenty nine. I mean, it, it's become a huge part of how people buy music, and that I guess was what was revolutionary about the iTunes Store at the time, wasn't it? Well, it was what was crucial to moving the listener base from just downloading things illegally to actually going back to paying for music. Was that that was sort of the 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 bone that had to be given to listeners was that ability to pay for the amount of music in in a different way. There's really good work done. There's a book called Appetite for Self-Destruction that looks back at what it was that challenged the recording industry. And sort of the simple expectation was that it was just this new technology came along and everything changed. And that really wasn't it. Uh, but the author builds this nice case about how it was the economic practices of the recording industry. When the CD was introduced, they, they raised the prices of, of an album, effectively, from cassette to CD, to an extent that they didn't need to in terms of the new costs, and then they never brought that that price point down. And so you had you created within your listener base this this pent up demand for uh, wanting to consume music in a different way and a feeling at, that they were really overpaying. And and to a degree, or well certainly relative to previous music, they were. And so in many ways, it was the economic and business strategies of the recording industry that set the stage for the revolution that transpired once digital distribution was possible. Right. But well, let's bring this back to Adele. Do you now, do you think that um, the album's lack of online availability really impacted the sales of the record? I think it's hard to know, and I think it's hard to know which direction, because in some cases the, the perception is that music that's streaming through different services serves as, as a, a sample for audiences. I mean, certainly 
hello was just about everywhere in the weeks before Thanksgiving. So, you know, whether you were watching it on and YouTube, the video on YouTube, or you know, Adele was across all of the or major late night shows. Or whether you were watching Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live, and then with Corden. Yeah, so she, the, the, it's been marketed quite extensively. But I think the idea is that often perhaps uh, music sales get a boost from streaming in that people can sample content and then decide that they want it. Uh, so I don't, but I don't think that really happened in this case. I think it's important to note as well that for those who bought the CD in or the album in CD form, it's all such a confusing set of words, right? Uh, <laughs> that there were bonus tracks even. And so I think this illustrates the way in which the recording industry does have multiple tools at its disposal. Um, and I think the other thing that it, it comes back to is that there's more than one or two good songs on that album. Oh, yeah, that that is a great album, just speaking uh, qual- qualitatively. And so it'd be interesting to, to see some sort of research of, of those who had bought it, you know, how satisfied they were and whether they thought that that, that really was a great value uh, to have that many songs and, or whether there, it was a case they only wanted a track or two. Exactly. Now, one more question. Um, Does the success of 25 mean the album on CD, on vinyl, however you bought this album, is not dead if it ever was? No, I think it's just... The last case I think that was this interesting was was Beyoncé sort of surprisingly dropping a complete album, you know, that no one had even heard of, um, in the night. And so I think we see, and again, established stars, and there's a lot of news about how Taylor Swift can release her music, and you know, what does it mean to make something exclusive to iTunes? Now, the album remains a, a great way to release music, especially if there are, are multiple tracks that are valued, and if it's an artist that has a pretty deep catalog. I, I think what's different and what's changed is that the, the singles space is also there, and that the recording industry will not be able to force audiences to consume music in one way or another in the way that they did and could in the past. Right. Now, on to our final segment, where we're going to talk about what we're watching this week. Amanda, what are you watching? Well, I got pulled out of my usual uh, pattern of, of consecutive series viewing to check out the new Funny or Die uh, movie, I guess, at 50 minutes. It's not quite what many people might think of a movie, but I think it's a good length for this. Uh, but Donald Trump's The Art of the Deal, the movie, uh, which is a satirical look at the real 1980s book written by Donald Trump um, and starring a uh, unrecognizable uh, Johnny Depp in the lead role. And, and so far, it, it's been an interesting blast back to the 1980s where I remember that for reasons I can't explain my family owned Trump the board game Trump the board game uh, yeah it was it was a different era um, but uh, it, it's been a it's it's a, it's a funny piece of television I don't know if it's television a movie or what but uh, that's what I was watching last night funny or die's been on a bit of a roll actually I don't know if you watched the triumph uh, the insult comic dogs election special I didn't see it but I, I saw that there was a lot of attention to it oh you should watch it but I've been I want to focus on something else um, I just recently wrapped watching the second season of ABC's Gallivant. That's a musical show, right? It is a musical show. Um, they, they've used it for the past two years as a mid-season fill-in. And as 
as I went into the second season, I saw it as a show that I kind of liked, you know, had res- you know, didn't have much respect for it, but it's a musical, so I'm going to tune in. And what I saw in the second season was massive improvement. The show became exactly what I hoped it would be. Um, they put in some really intelligent parodies of songs from West Side Story and Grease and The Little Mermaid, Alan Macon parodying himself. Um, and really went for some deep character growth in the second season, which is something that I really was happy with. And, you know, the sh- nobody's watching it, so I doubt I'll ever get to see a new episode. Um, but I really, you know, definitely if you get the chance, look up this show. It's worth watching. That's great. For more about Alex and Amanda, your hosts, visit amandalots.com and take a look at the Media Business Matters link where you can find more episodes like this. You can also follow me on Twitter at DrTVLots, and you can follow Alex at... You can follow me at at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thanks for listening to The Third Podcast. We'll be back next time.